Well, hey, everybody. Welcome one more time to Mill City. We're glad you're here. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here at Mill City, and I see some new faces. I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you before. Usually hanging around back here afterwards, so I'd love to say hello. Um, we're glad you're here with us today. We've been having a great conversation, and I'm excited to continue on with that this morning. Uh, before we do that, can you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are Emmanuel, that you are the with us God, and that you are present here in this space. Whether we can experience or feel you or not, we want to trust this morning that you are here and that your presence makes a difference for us um, individually and together as a community. And God, we come to you today in, on behalf of Sheridan, the school where we're worshiping right now. God, we pray that your presence would remain in this place, that it would make a difference in the lives of the students and the faculty and the staff. God, we know that there's been uh, some just tough situations that have happened even just in the last few weeks. And so, God, we pray in the name of Jesus for peace to come over this place, for peace to come over the minds and the hearts of the kids who are coming to school with a lot of pain and a lot of angst and stress. God, we, we trust you. We've seen you make a difference in this school, and we, we believe that you can continue to do that. And we see it as an absolute privilege, God, to be here worshiping in this school. And we ask that you bless them for their hospitality. And today we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word as we look into this story. We ask that it would change us, that we would be people who leave here today differently than when we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the community time question was about pranks. Um, how many of you have participated in a prank in your life? Okay. How many of you have been a recipient of a prank in your life? Okay. Um, so you look back on your life, and hopefully some just really amazing memories came to mind. Hopefully none of them were, like, traumatic. I actually have some traumatic ones I can tell you about later that just were, yeah, traumatic. So I'm not going to think about those. When I think about pranks, though, there is a specific season of my life that comes just flooding to my mind. And that was the season of my life when I was a resident director in a, in a dorm, okay? So if you don't know what that is, it is a person who is not in college anymore who decides for very little pay to continue to live with college students, all right? So we've got some resident directors who are part of our community or former resident directors. And, you know, we probably should have a little bit of a support group or something from that experience. Um, but it's really fun, too. It's, it's really fun. So uh, I was getting my master's degree, and I was working at the undergrad, um, and this was just a wild time of life. And one of the things that made it wild, you know, well, just living with, you know, 219-year-olds is going to be wild. But one of the things that made it really wild was the pranks, okay? And so I wanted to tell you about some of the pranks that I saw happen when I was an RD because there were just some prank wars, so to speak, right? So they go back and forth. So maybe some of you have been in a prank war before where it, it just happens back and forth, the pranks are going. So there was the prank where you take the Dixie cups and you fill them with water and you fill the whole hallway with Dixie cups overnight, right? So then people are coming out in the morning and there's just Dixie cups full of water and they can't get to the bathroom. And then you're pouring out water while you have to go to the bathroom and it's just a whole thing. Um, so that one's happened a few times. Uh, it definitely happened, the one where the, the Vaseline on the toilet seat thing, that one where it just creates a really slippery situation and um, wet things, yeah, it's bad. So uh, the Vaseline on the toilet seat thing, oh, I'm giving the junior high students ideas, sorry. Uh, sorry, parents. Um, but so that one was special. Uh, we definitely saw a lot of things that happened in the bathroom. I'm not really sure why the bathroom was the place of the pranks, but removing all of the shower curtains from the women's bathroom, which results in women not showering. 
don't know if you know that, but if there's no shower curtains, the women are not going to shower. Uh, so that was a problem. Uh, the, the favorite prank, actually Christian Ann loved this prank in college, taking everybody's towels while they're in the shower. So that one happened quite a bit. Um, for some reason, there was this thing about putting dead carcasses of animals into the bathrooms so that you'd open up the stall and there would be a deer head just sitting there. I know. I don't know if that like, happens at colleges outside of Minnesota, but that happened. Squirrels, dead things. Just It's really strange. Um, one time, the, a, a group of, of women went over to the guy's floor and took an entire guy's, I think they had some help, they took an entire guy's dorm room out into the lobby and then reset up his dorm room into the lobby. So then he came home and there was his whole room. Every single object that he had in his room, including his bed and his dresser, were in the, in the lobby, the hallway. And so I, there was one that was my favorite one that I think I ever saw a student pull off, or a group of students pull off, and that was they took 15 alarm clocks, okay? They set the alarm clocks for 3 o'clock in the morning. They unscrewed the HVAC vents for the heat and the air conditioning, threw the alarm clocks back into the vents, and then screwed them shut. 15 of them on one floor. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, 15 alarms went off and nobody knew where they were. People are scrambling around looking for screwdrivers and trying to figure out who the like, thinnest person is that they can shove into the heating duct to pull this out. This I mean, it was never a dull moment, right, Jen Hillier? Never a dull moment. Austin, you all know what I'm talking about. If you live that long with college students, you will see things that you never thought you were going to see. And at some point, as an RD, your role is to recognize when it's gone too far, okay? Now, um, as funny as I thought the alarm clock thing was, it's gone too far, you know? So you, you pull the students together who you think are the main antagonists, protagonists, whatever, and you're trying to figure out how to get to the bottom of the situation. And without fail, nobody seems to remember how it started. You know, like nobody knows who actually started this whole prank war thing. And so it's really useless to try to have a conversation. All you can do is say, it needs to stop now. And then they just go undercover with them, right? And, and this is the thing about the, the experience in the prank wars at college is that these tensions come up. And at some point, they're not that funny anymore and people are actually getting ticked off. And some of these tensions I watched last for like four years. And they're still seniors in college, and nobody remembers what happened and how it started, but there's still all this tension, and they don't, they're like these, these uh, you know, like rivalries that came out of who knows where, and nobody even knows. So, I mean, I tell you this because, well, mostly because it's funny, and because it's a weird part of my life that I feel like if I share it's therapeutic slightly. Um, but... I say this because when you look back in your life, whether it's a community you're a part of or your family or different things like that, there's all this, this stuff that comes up in your family. There's tensions, there's conflict, and oftentimes I feel that it's kind of weird that you don't even know exactly where the issue started. You don't exactly know what happened. Some conflict you have with your extended family, all you know is that when we get together for the holidays, it's awkward, and you're not sure where the tension started. Uh, sometimes the baggage that we all feel, even about our own past, we, we feel the sense of baggage that we're taking into these different situations, and it's almost like somewhere along the line we picked up these suitcases of like guilt and shame and anger and frustration, whatever, anxiety, and we're not even sure where along the line we thought it was a good idea to pick that stuff up in the first place. Or we look back on our life and our relationship with God and it's hard to know, but somewhere along the line, there became these barriers between us and God, this wall almost between us and this God that we, we used to think loved us and was there, but it just feels like there's distance there. And if we're really honest, we don't really know where that started or why that started or how we got 
where we are, but we know now that the distance feels really real. And so maybe some of you can identify with those different realities. And as we've been having this conversation in Lent, we're in the season of Lent right now, leading up to Easter, we've been in a conversation we're calling searching for God. Searching for God. Most of us have had a season in our life, or maybe we're in one now, where we feel like we are searching for God. Like God seems just kind of out of reach for us as we're kind of feeling around in the dark for where God might be. And sometimes these experiences, looking back, have caused this feeling of needing to search for God. And as we've said each week, I think this is really important, it's normal to have times in your life where there's doubt, there's questions, there's searching. Sometimes I feel like we don't just acknowledge that, that that's normal, there's not something wrong with you. That's actually, at times, I would suggest, a sign of maturity in your faith. A sign that you're actually trying to push into something deeper, like Liz was singing about this idea of going deeper in that song. Like, there's something about that that sometimes causes you to be in a place of confusion, of questions, a wilderness, so to speak, a time when you're not totally sure where God is in the midst of that. And sometimes we can feel uh, maybe guilt or shame about that. But the truth is, I think, that that can be a sign that there's actually some maturity, that we're trying to really figure out some new things about who God is. Maybe we're trying to take really seriously who Jesus says that he is and who Jesus is inviting us to be. And that can bring up these questions in this searching. Our community is a a great place of, I would say, critical thinking and processing. And some of us would admit that we stay in that place a little too long in the questions and in the doubt. Um, But it doesn't mean that that place is wrong. And so what we're encouraging all of us to do together in this season of Lent is to move forward and try to take steps towards searching for God, not because it means that we're not okay, but it means that we're moving forward. And so some of us have been reading this little book. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Day by Day, a 40-Day Journey with the Daily Office. The Daily Office is this idea of reading something in the morning and something in the afternoon or evening that kind of grounds you and centers you in who God is. And if you're searching for God, I would encourage you that having some rhythms like that would really help, even if they feel um, not sure at first. So this little book has been really great. We have some of them, I think, in the, at the connections table that you can get today if you want one. So please grab one. You can jump in at the beginning if you want. But it's 40 days, and Lent is about 40 days, but you can just start at the beginning. And so we're on week three in this little book. And today, the, the topic of this book, or this, this week, is um, looking back at your past. Looking back at where you've come from. We talked the first week about... Uh, acknowledging our need for God, that even in the midst of the questions, we do need to keep searching for God, like I was saying. The second week, JD talked about what it looks like to be people who acknowledge that sometimes there's barriers that God does not want us to have in our life. Sometimes it's burnout. Sometimes it's things that people have projected on us that we need to allow God to release in our life so that we can step closer to God, that we can move towards searching for God. And so today, we're talking about this idea of looking at your past, looking back at the story that has been written in your life up until now. And I realize that the idea of looking back at your past for some of you feels really daunting. I know from conversations with many of you that when you think about the idea of looking back at your, at your life story, you get a pit in your stomach immediately because of things that you've done, of things that were done to you, of experiences that you've had, and you hate thinking about these things. And I know that there's experiences for many of you, myself included, that still affect us negatively today. But I also know that there's wonderful memories 
there's ways where we look back on things that have happened in our life and they've completely shaped who we are today and, and the ways that we experience God and the ways we experience the world. And so over today, I want to suggest that in order to move forward in life with freedom, there's times where we really need to look back. In order to move forward in freedom, there's times when we need to look back. When we look back at our past, we have to look to see what we think God might have been doing so that we can understand what God's doing now and understand how God might lead us into the future. So this is also part of this premise. The reality is, and this is talked about here in this, this little book, the more we know about our past and how we experienced the past, and the more we discover what God might have been doing in the past, the more freedom we have to make decisions about how we truly want to live in the present and the future. Let me say that one more time because it's kind of the, the cornerstone of what I'm talking about. The more we know about our past, how we experienced our past then, what God might have been doing in our past, the more we understand that, the more freedom we have to make decisions about how we want to live in the present and in the future. The reality is, is that there, our, our past is going to impact our future. The question is whether or not we're going to be intentional about the ways that our past is going to impact our future. Because if you're not intentional, then it will happen in ways that you might not expect and you might not hope for. So the key part of this is having this emotionally healthy spirituality like this book is talking about. And I have found that this reality has proven very true for me in my life personally, and I want to share about that a little bit today, um, but also as I've just heard lots of your stories. And so first, I want to take a look at a story in the Bible that I think illustrates the reality that sometimes we have to look back in order to move forward in freedom. And this is a story about a guy named Joseph. Some of you might be familiar with the story, um, but it might be new to some of you. Uh, the story of Joseph goes from Genesis 37 to 50, so I'm going to read the entire thing. No, kidding. It's a whole, it's a ton. So I'm just going to summarize <laughs> for you the story of Joseph for just a refresher for anyone who's heard it before, and maybe it's new to you for the first time. Joseph, where we pick up the story, is about 17 years old, they think. And he is a son of a guy named Jacob. He's got 11 brothers, and he's one of the youngest ones. And he's daddy's favorite. And daddy shows that Joseph is his favorite by treating him differently than his brothers. So you can kind of see where that might go. Because if you've ever been in a family where you feel like your parents were treating one sibling different than the other, it doesn't go well, right? And so basically what's happening here is that Joseph's being treated differently, and at one point, it kind of comes to a head because uh, Joseph is given this incredible gift by his dad, this beautiful coat. Um, beautiful coat. And apparently, it's just this beautiful thing. And we have a picture of what the coat looked like, Brian, if you want to put it up. Apparently, it looked like this. And apparently, Joseph looked like Donny Osmond. And it was this beautiful Technicolor dream coat. So if anybody has seen, has anybody seen the, the musical Technicolor Dreamcoat. I actually haven't seen it. It sounds super cheesy. But when I found out that Clay Aiken also plays Joseph, I thought, what? You're welcome for a reminder about Clay Aiken, right? <laughs> Who forgot about him? He's playing Joseph now on Broadway, or he was. So, I mean, look at that. So apparently this, this coat looked like some sort of weird parachute thing, and that made the brothers jealous, apparently. So it's not a biblical fact. Yeah, Isaac's like, that's not what happened. So we're not even sure if it was colorful. We don't know. All we know is that the coat made the brothers jealous, all right? So we can say goodbye to Clay Aiken because no one's going to pay attention to me for the rest of the time if they're looking at Clay. I know, right? So um, based, and then let's just make a real, like, obvious point. Brian made this point earlier. Doesn't exactly look like he's uh, fitting the ethnicity of the true biblical story. 
and I'm just going to say that, declare that. So, um, so basically this, this amazing coat, and the brothers are like, that's it. That's it. We're, we're done with this guy. And out in the field, they're shepherds, and the brothers are out in the field, and uh, they're so mad at Joseph. They're getting so vengeful towards him that they, the story says that they threw him into an empty well. And so they weren't trying to drown him. There's no water in there, but he can't get out. And it just so happens that as he's in this well, some slave traders from Egypt come through, journeying through where they're at. And the brothers decide that they're going to sell their brother Joseph into slavery. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh my goodness, this story is totally over the top. But I think many of us know that this kind of thing happens all the time in the world. There are people who sell their siblings and their children into slavery because they're desperate and maybe because they're vengeful. I don't know. But this is a thing that actually happens in our world. And uh, Joseph had another thing against him that uh, I didn't mention that really made his brothers upset, and that was that he had this weird way where he interpreted dreams and said, oh, I'm having this dream, I think it means something. And the brothers were upset because one of his dreams was about all the brothers bowing down to, to him. Well, your older brothers don't want to think about having to bow down to you ever. So that in that moment, I think that's probably what they were thinking about, not the amazing Technicolor dream coat. They're not as upset about the coat as they are about the fact that Joseph is seemingly saying that he's more important than all of them, and they're upset. So in that moment, they're probably thinking about that story and what happened with that, and they're like, forget it, we're going to sell this guy. And he's taken away to Egypt with, uh, all, uh, with these slave traders. Um, so basically, at this point, Jacob's already experiencing something really difficult. Uh, the brothers take his coat they cover it in sheep's blood and take it back to dad and say, oh, I don't know, an animal must have gotten him. And they lie to their dad about what happened to their brother. And of course, Jacob is completely devastated that, that Joseph was killed in this horrible way. And then Joseph goes on to Egypt to become a slave. And the brothers live with this lie with their dad who never is aware of what actually happened. As the story goes, uh, Joseph comes into Egypt and he's working for uh, a leader named Potiphar. And basically, as you read the story, you see that Joseph is doing everything he can to try to follow God's leadership in the situation that he's in. He's in a horrible situation, but he's doing everything he can to try to let God lead him. And because he does that, he comes into favor with Potiphar. And he becomes somebody who actually is trusted by this leader. And he comes into authority himself. And he's not treated like a slave anymore. He's treated like a leader. And he's brought into these important conversations. But the story gets worse because now he thinks that he's maybe going to be okay and not live this life of slavery. And uh, weird things start to happen. The boss's wife basically accuses him of trying to, to get with her, right? And it was her trying to get with him. That's how it went. Nobody believed him, and so he ends up thrown in jail because it seems like he was trying to take advantage of the boss's wife. And so he ends up in jail, and we're not exactly sure of the time frame, but somewhere between maybe 10 and 13 years, this guy is in jail. And so you can imagine at this point, Joseph has just extreme trauma in his life. This would for sure be the kind of past that is going to dictate your future, right? The kind of traumatic things that you're going to not... I mean, there's no way that you are going to avoid taking these things into your future. And I think the truth is this way for all of us. Your past will shape your future. And the question is going to be is how intentional you're going to be about that. And if you aren't intentional about that, there's going to be these, my friend Christine talks about the ruts, kind of the ruts of your family system, the ruts of whatever you've experienced. Kind of like, uh, you know, you're riding your bike and you're trying to stay out of the 
the little rut that all the other bikes made. It's really hard to stay out of that rut. And if you don't think intentionally about where you've come from in order to go forward, you'll fall into those ruts time and time again. The ways that you've been hurt, the issues that never got worked through, they will, I'm going to put it this way, they will echo themselves into your future. I heard this quote once recently, it's not so much that history repeats itself, but it echoes itself. It's not so much that history repeats itself, but it echoes itself. And I think this is true over the duration of our own lives. I think that this echo is true for uh, future generations and our families and people who are around us. I think that this echo happens for whole nations, for the world. We see this echo of history. And I think it's an important question. What will the echo of your life story be? What will the echo of your life story be? I think there's times where we feel like we have no control over what the echo of our life story would be. And to a certain extent, we can't control what happens to us, the circumstances that we face, and things like that. But we do have a choice of whether or not we're going to invite God into the processing that we might do of our past. We do have a choice if we're willing to even look back. And we have a choice of whether or not we're going to welcome God into our current situation and look for the movement of God around us. We talk about that here all the time. What is God doing around us now? And how might God lead us into his future that he has for us? Listen to how uh, Peter Scazzaro talks about what happened to Joseph. We see in the story that Joseph chooses to let God into how he sees his past, how he experiences his present, and how he moves forward in the future. This is what it says in this little book. Joseph was born into a family characterized by great brokenness and sadness. Lying, jealousy, secrecy, and betrayal visited upon Joseph's young life, and he spent 10 to 13 years in prison, completely cut off from his family. Nonetheless, Joseph was able to observe the large, loving hand of God through all his setbacks and disappointments. In doing so, he affirmed that God mysteriously leads us into his purposes through darkness and obscurity. God is the Lord God Almighty who has all history in his grip, working in ways that are mostly hidden to us on earth. Joseph understood that in all things, God is at work, in spite of, through, and against all human effort, orchestrating his purposes. Joseph did not deny his past, but trusted in God's goodness and love, even when circumstances went from bad to worse. And I think this is so important that Joseph did not deny his past. We see in this story that he didn't run from the pain. He actually stepped towards it. And we'll see as the story goes how he did that. When we read this story, we see that Joseph begins to see very tangibly how God can redeem even the worst story. Joseph believes that the enemy or others, whatever they might have done to mean for harm, God can actually use it for good. And this is what we see happen in this story for Joseph. Um, After that 10 to 13 years in prison, he ends up back in a place of uh, authority again, out of that sense of being a slave or being a prisoner. And this time, it's also because of his ability to discern dreams, but things work out a little bit better for him this time. Instead, it gets him out of trouble instead of puts him into trouble. Uh, His past experience with sharing dreams and what he thought God might be saying about the dream landed him in human trafficking. And now he's in prison, but his ability to have wisdom and to listen to what God might be saying to somebody through the emotional processing that they're doing while they're sleeping 
uh, might be something important. And so what happens is he's promoted into Pharaoh's leadership because Pharaoh has this dream, and, and Joseph interprets the dream to mean that there's going to be seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh trusts Joseph's interpretation of the dream, and he puts Joseph in charge of making sure that as much food as possible can be saved so that when the seven years of abundance is over, there is stuff saved, food saved, for the seven years of famine so that people wouldn't starve. And when the famine did come, just like Pharaoh had dreamed, everyone was in need of food. And so they had to come to Joseph to be given a ration of the food that they were able to take for different parts, seasons of that seven years of famine. And uh, Joseph there and he's overseeing this process and people from all over the place are coming to get this food because nobody else had saved what they needed to save and the people are coming from everywhere including joseph's brothers and so joseph's brothers are coming in to to request food from him and guess what they do they bow down because joseph is a person in authority and so they would bow down to somebody in authority just like the dream that he had had and perhaps shouldn't have shared the way he did with his brothers right but this it happened. It happened the way that he saw it. And at first, they didn't recognize Joseph. You can imagine that after a few years, you know, he went from 17 to maybe 29 or 30, probably has a lot more facial hair, and they're just, they don't recognize him. And he recognizes them. And for a little bit, he goes without them recognizing, but eventually he explains to them who he is and that it's him. And when he told them, it says that he wept so loudly that Pharaoh and the other Egyptian leaders heard him. And clearly it was an emotional moment for him. He wasn't running away from his emotions. He wasn't pushing away the pain from the past. But he had in that moment a choice in how he was going to respond. And Joseph could have been angry, but he clearly in that moment realized that God had made it so that thousands, maybe more than thousands of people were not going to starve in a famine because he was where he was at that time. And he wouldn't be where he was if it wouldn't have been for some of the painful experiences that he experienced. And so somehow with God's help, he was able to see the purpose that came from the pain. And even after his dad ends up dying and he hears about his dad's death, listen to his perspective. I'm going to read Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Listen to Joseph's perspective during this really hard season. After burying his father, oh, page turn. After burying his father in Egypt, he went back to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Oh no, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, and we're not sure that this ever actually happened, but they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. So here again, he's crying. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And his whole family moved to Egypt where they could make sure that they had what they needed. And I think it's a fair question, even when we hear this story. Why would God allow Joseph to go through so much pain and loss? 
I mean, couldn't have there been some other way? And I bet a lot of us have asked those same questions. Why would we go through all of these different things to, to, I mean, yeah, sure, it seems as though there's traces of good that came from all of Joseph's pain. But being sold into slavery, prison for 10 years, I'm sure there was questions around that for Joseph. I'm sure we have questions around that for our own lives or the people around us. And sometimes we never even see very clear traces of good that comes from that. And I don't think that God causes pain, but we often wonder why he allows it. And I think the reality of that, as we're searching for God, is that that's a mystery to us. That the way that Peter Scazzaro said in the book, it's a mystery. We don't see the purposes of God. They're not all revealed to us. We're not God. And that is a really tough thing to swallow for a lot of us. But in this story, we see Joseph choose to look back on the story and look for God's action and look for God's action around him then and in the future, even if he couldn't see all of it, and maybe even assume God's action, even if he didn't know for sure. And he's doing so while still engaging his emotions. He's not running from them. He's not stuffing them down. He's dealing with what he's feeling. And when he did see how God was moving back then, he is able to see how even the painful experiences are helping him then move forward in freedom. You can see in the story, he's moving forward in freedom with his family, isn't he? He's moving forward in freedom in his relationship with God instead of holding bitterness or things like that. And in some ways, I think he's moving forward in his relationship with himself, his ability to hold the experiences that he's had, where he's come from, and where he's going. And so I think for all of us, a question that we have to ask is this. Are we willing to surrender our stories to God? All of them. Are we willing to look back on our life and try to see what God was doing in the midst of the best and the worst moment of our lives? And when we see what God's doing and we notice that, it impacts our current situation. And what I've noticed, especially in conversations with a lot of you, is that it changes how you tell the story. Have you noticed that before? When you start to look back and kind of see how God was doing something or maybe start to wonder if God was doing something, it changes how the story even comes out of your mouth as you're telling it. One of the, my favorite things about my job here as a pastor is getting to hear your story. I wish that was the only thing that I did for my job because um, then I could hear everybody's story maybe if we really timed it well. Um, but of course I have other things that I have to do. But when I get to hear people's stories, that's my favorite part of my job. And I have heard some amazing stories about how people have looked back on their life and how they have started to see what God was doing even in the midst of pain and suffering and confusing situations and the good things too and how that affects how they live their life now and what that means for their future. I want to give you two examples and then share a personal example as well, um, kind of with the rest of my time. Uh, some of you were at the Winter Getaway. Who was at the Winter Getaway? Yeah, it was amazing. Everybody, come next year. And uh, Steve Vellner shared some of his story. Where are you, Steve? There you are. And Steve was sharing just, I won't tell you the whole story. He can tell you if you want to talk to him about it. But basically he was talking about how at some point in his life, he looked at his nuclear family and he thought, it's hopeless that this family could ever really truly love each other well. It's hopeless that this family could really be people that come alongside each other the way a family really should be because there was mental illness that he was dealing with in his family with his dad and others in the family. Um, it was just wreaking havoc in their life. And Steve shared about how he would pray at times for God to do something. And even sometimes he prayed that God would split their family up so that they didn't have to be in the pain that they were in. And some of you would hear that story and say that might have been a viable option because of how painful it was. 
But God did this amazing work of redemption through, I think, some of Steve's prayers and other things like that. And the family now, just in the last few years, has begun to connect in these new ways. The, the, the children are all adult children now, but there's this newfound connection and healing and relationship that's being formed. And Steve was sharing the story at the winter getaway. And I watched people in the room with this, if you ever are telling your story and you see people nodding, because people were just thinking, and I, they talked to him about this later and talked to me, Man, he's sharing this story about mental illness in this way that's helping me feel like I'm not the only one that's had to deal with that in my family. And people were able to open up and to talk to Steve and to each other and others about some of these painful experiences that sometimes they felt like they needed to just shove down and, and pretend didn't happen because there's shame and all this weird stigma attached. And I see in the, in the way that Steve was sharing his story that something that, God, that, that the enemy was using for bad and for evil, God was using for good because it was creating spaces of freedom for other people while we were on that getaway. And I know that's how Steve sees it as well. And Steve is telling the story of his family's life and experience in different ways now as he's seeing how God has had his hand on the situation all along. Uh, I met with another woman from our community here this week, and she was telling me this incredible story about, um, and painful story about her family, not just her nuclear family, actually the family she grew up in, from her great-grandparents to her parents, or to her grandparents and her parents, there was history of abuse and witchcraft and weird stuff, occult, all this kind of stuff going on. She doesn't even know totally what happened. And she was talking about how all of that came to uh, the surface when she became an adult and she got married, and she realized, oh my goodness, I need to deal with some of this stuff because there is so much weird things that happened. She had memories flooding to the surface all of a sudden of the abuse that her and her siblings received from their dad that she had completely blocked out. And she had this difficult choice to make. Am I going to just kind of shove the past away and say, hey, look, I'm in a new family now. Me and my husband, we're moving on. Or am I going to deal with some of that stuff? And she went on to tell me the story of how, with extreme courage, her and her husband stepped into counseling and processing that she said was some of the most difficult experiences of in her entire life so that they could move through some of that pain and some of that suffering and, and not allow that rut to be the rut for their family. And then as she was sharing about this, she started talking about her adult children and the relationships that they have with each other. And I couldn't help but notice that she shared with me that she was afraid to even do anything that would even slightly disappoint her mom because her mom had been manipulative and had been scary to her. She said, I was scared of my mom. And she's telling me stories about her adult children that show that they trust her, that they love her, that it's okay to share things that maybe they disagree with her about because she engages them with such a loving and graceful spirit. And I just had to say to her, I'm like, hold on a second. You're telling me these stories about generations. And what I hear you saying is you and your husband made a distinct choice to break the chain to break the chain that had been happening for generations in your family. And now there's evidence I can see with my own eyes that, yeah, sure, we all have issues, you know, every family, but your kids are growing up in such a healthier environment and they're stepping out as independent adults in ways that you had to work through with such extreme courage. And that's amazing. That's amazing. And so that was an amazing story. And then I just want to share briefly this story that I've experienced in my life just over the last three years. I felt like it was an important story to share. Uh, some of you know that I lost my dad when I was 17, and I found out that he was sick with a, a terminal illness when I was seven. So from when I was seven to 17, I watched my dad uh, dealing with this disease that he knew was going to take his life. And uh, he was in ministry too. And I realized about three years ago, 
and you notice these types of things in your life if you're paying attention, that there were some things about that experience that God wanted me to process. And I tried to ignore it. <laughs> I don't want to bring up the grief. I don't want to bring up the pain and the loss and all the icky things that happened during that season of life. But God made it so painfully obvious that I couldn't, couldn't ignore it anymore. And I ended up going into counseling with this great therapist and un, like, working out a bunch of stuff that had happened back then. And there was tons of things that I can't explain right now. But one thing that I noticed that I never thought of before during that time of counseling is that for those 10 years when my dad was sick, me and my brother, we watched somebody who we thought of as our hero live as though he was dying because he was dying. And that had such profound impact on me. And I realized in this conversation with my therapist that I didn't realize this in the front of my brain, but in, in my subconscious, sometimes I was living as though I was dying. Meaning I was making choices because I didn't want to lose time. I wanted to make sure that I got all these things that I needed to do in life as though my life was so short and was some sort of weird country song like live like you're dying. And that's not my actual life. You know, like I'm not dying. That's not, I'm not my dad's story. But that was my whole life growing up. And working through all of that was really, really hard and really difficult. And as you have that experience week to week and you're processing your past, it's kind of like, is this doing anything? Is this even making a difference? But what I noticed after a while, about a year ago, is that all of a sudden my energy level was different. Because trying to live like you're dying is exhausting. And I started to realize that I was viewing time completely differently. And instead of saying, oh, it takes too much time to make that healthy food, I'm going to just stop by McDonald's again. It was like, no, 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 I actually, if I eat this healthy food and I take that 20 minutes, that's actually going to buy me time. That's actually going to give me more energy. If I just get up an hour earlier so that I can do a short workout, that's going to change how I experience the rest of the day. And my whole orientation towards time, uh, time that I spend listening to God and in quiet and silence, going away on retreats, all these things that felt like a waste of time all of a sudden felt important. And I'll tell you that at this point in my life, I have never felt emotionally and spiritually lighter in my life. I've also never felt physically lighter in my life because of this whole change. I mean, it was a complete change about nine months ago, a year ago. And I see how this is true, that God is there in your past, he's there in your present, and he's there in your future, and your past is going to shape your future, but the question is if you're going to be intentional with that or not. I'm going to have the band come back up. And I think if there's anything I want to say to you who look back on your life and you're upset that we just had to spend all this time thinking about your past because it's hard, brokenness is not the end of the story. We know that brokenness is not the end of the story. We know that the end of the story is God coming to be with us again, Jesus returning, and there being no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering. And I have come to believe just in my life, I've seen this, that there is nothing that God can't redeem. There's nothing about your past that you've done or what's been done to you that God cannot redeem. Right now and for sure, someday in the future, all things will be made new, including you and including me. And it might take some work. It might take some intentionality to look for God's action. It might be really difficult to work through it like the stories that I told. But if we can begin to see what God's doing, then we can see even more fully what God's doing in our life now. And it will shape how we move into the future. So a couple quick takeaways I want you to encourage you. We're going to have a training event on April 7th. We'll send out more information. It's called Your Story. And uh, Christina Osgood, who leads the Urban Retreat, is going to come and help us process the different chapters 
of our story. And if you're interested in that, then you can let us know. We'll be sending information out. It's on millcitychurch.com. If you want other resources, counselors, spiritual directors, that's also on our website. If you can't find it, just email info at millcitychurch.com, and we will send that out to you. Uh, we're going to close today listening to a, a song. Ashish is going to sing it for us. It's a new song to our community. It's called Sovereign Over Us. And I just want you to take this time to reflect on the lyrics of the song and the truth that I think is in the lyrics of this song, where the bridge says, even what the enemy means for evil, God, you turn it out for our good and for your glory. God invites us to surrender our story to him today, our whole story, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. So as you listen to this, I invite you to open up your heart and try to, to release that story to God, maybe for the first time, maybe again, as you listen and you reflect. Will you surrender your whole life, your past, your present, and future to a God who deeply loves you?